let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 13. Today, we are very privileged to again to come to the parables of the kingdom. And uh, we're really looking at two parables, two short parables, and then after that, Matthew's commentary. We are going to take the Lord's table after this, so I want to get moving. Matthew th- chapter 13, I'm going to read 31 all the way down to 35. The two short parables, and then Matthew's little bit of a commentary there. Matthew 13, beginning in 31, he put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. This is the word of God. Now, these two parables give us a very encouraging point. If you think about it, what Jesus has revealed so far in these parables has been, maybe from one perspective, a little bit depressing. I mean, there's a lot of truth in it. They've been hard truths, though. They've been difficult truths for those men to hear at that time. first parable, we learn that most people will reject the gospel, the, the spreading of the word, the spreading of the seed. Most of those soils were soils of rejection. For some, it would be obvious rejection. The, the seed would bounce on that soil. The birds would come and pluck it up. People's feet would crush it. Immediate rejection. For others, they would they're the shallow soil they would reject in time. Maybe in, at first it looked like they received the gospel. At first it would look like they accepted Christ, but in the end the sun would come out. A little bit of pressure, a little bit of, uh, of uh, persecution because of the gospel, and they would reject. Others... This is the weedy soil or the fibrous soil or the thorny soil, and these people will reject by simply being overcome with the worries of the world, primarily money. Three out of four soils reject. And Jesus is commissioning his men, and especially at the end of Matthew, he would send his men out as, as sheep among wolves, and, and he sends them out with this knowledge. By the way, guys, you're not going to be very successful. Three out of four are going to reject you, if not more. Well, after Jesus gives that first parable, sort of depressing about the success of the kingdom, he told another parable, and we looked at this last week, that his kingdom would not be instantly visible and overtake the world. Rather, weeds, evil people in the world, would still exist. There would not be instantaneous judgment. Jesus would not set up his kingdom, his throne, and judge all the evil. No, Christians would be saved, and there would be people who follow Christ, but many, many weeds, many other people would grow up alongside them. And this was troubling for the servants of God. And this is troubling for us. We look around this world. It's an evil place. It's a terrible place. There's a lot of sin, a lot of evil, not just natural evils like we see with coronavirus and the other natural evils like hurricanes, but with people. And it troubles us. And it troubled the servants of the master in the parable. And Jesus is saying, basically, until the end of time, until I come back, things are going to be tough. Weeds grow with the wheat. And yes, we can look and hope to that day when Jesus returns and finally things are better, but until then, it could be sort of 
depressing. Now, these are vital truths, these two parables, the first two parables, vital truths, amazingly helpful. But if you are hearing these truths, especially for the first time, you might be inclined to be a little bit depressed. So it's almost as if Jesus is answering this depression or this despondency that maybe his disciples felt. Wait, hang on, Jesus. I mean, this doesn't sound like that exciting of a kingdom to be in. A lot of people are going to reject it, and there's going to be a lot of evil around it. It's almost as if Jesus heard that question before they even asked it. And so he gives them another couple parables that are far more encouraging. In spite of the evil all around them, in spite of widespread rejection, the kingdom will still prosper and it will grow and it will grow exponentially. The growth represented here is amazing. It's shocking. It's, like I said, exponential. You could even say explosive. As the disciples make other disciples and those disciples in turn make other disciples, you eventually have this massive movement of people following Christ. It's what Robert Coleman in the book from the 50s called Master Plan of Evangelism. This was God's plan. This was Jesus' plan of evangelism. The gospel wouldn't remain stagnating there in those few people in that small group. It wouldn't remain even just in those 120 people who eventually at the end of Jesus' ministry followed him. It wouldn't even remain just in those few thousand people there early in the early church. No, it would be far greater than that. D. James Kennedy, I grew up with his evangelism program, and when he decided on the title for his evangelism program, he called it Evangelism Explosion, and it's based on this fundamental principle, that the kingdom of Christ will explode. There will be many, many followers and many people in this kingdom. And this is exactly what Jesus is saying in these two very encouraging parables. What seems so small, what seems so insignificant, what seems rejected, what seems persecuted, in spite of all this, this is going to grow. I was reading the late R.C. Sproul's sermon on this text, and he pointed out that the kingdom of heaven is both small but growing. And he said it's hidden, but it's working. As I looked at these three sections, I I agreed with him. I thought, I really can't do better than these points here that he's making. I would say maybe there's a third point that is made in that, that commentary that Matthew gives us in verses 34 and 35. All these things sort of overlapping, encouraging truths that the kingdom will not remain small and insignificant and lacking as they saw it in their day. So let's write down these truths about the kingdom of Christ or the kingdom of heaven. These things were true, especially at the stage in which Jesus spoke these. I mean, they're not so much, some of this is not so much true anymore because we live 2,000 years later and the kingdom of heaven has grown expansively. But for them particularly, Jesus was giving them these truths. Number one, it is indeed small but growing. Verse 31 is the next parable he gives them. He put another parable before them saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. I have to do a little bit of a digression here. The the God-haters, the Bible critics, they love this parable. I don't know if you knew this or not. They love this parable. They use it in every generation to criticize 
the reliability of Jesus and the reliability of Scripture. They believe a, a grievous error has been made in this passage by Jesus Himself and His disciples who put this down, Matthew in particular, was not smart enough to pick up on this terrible mistake. What is that terrible mistake? Verse 32, Jesus said that the mustard seed is the smallest of all seeds. And of course, even a first-year botany student, these critics would say, even a first-year botany student would, would know that the mustard seed is not indeed the smallest seed. It wasn't even the smallest seed that they had available to them and knew about in Israel in that day. So this proves, these critics say, that Jesus was fallible, He made a mistake, He was in error about this, or His knowledge somehow lacked about botany. And, uh, and worse than that, His disciples who wrote the Bible, these men weren't smart enough to pick up on the mistakes that Jesus made. Now, how do we respond to this accusation? Well, there's a couple of responses. I think both of them are pretty solid. First of all, the reason that most of you read this parable and did not instantly see some grievous mistake is because whether or not you know this word or not, you understand hyperbole. Have you guys ever heard that word, hyperbole? No, we've not heard hyperbole. Let me give you what the hyperbole Hyperbole is using exaggeration to make a point. And we do this all the time, right? We exaggerate all the time. What if you were sitting in the congregation and Pastor Ryan stood up here and, and uh, you leaned over to the, your neighbor and said, he is the tallest pastor. I would say gangliest or nerdiest, really. But you would say he's the tallest pastor. And your, your friend sitting next to you, you understands hyperbole. If they didn't understand hyperbole, they'd say, no, he's not. I, surely there's other pastors in this world who are taller than Pastor Ryan. I mean, he's, he's very tall. We understand that. But he's, he's not that tall. I mean, there's, there are taller people, and, and surely one or two of them have been a pastor before. Now, you guys understand hyperbole. We use hyperbole all the time. We use exaggeration. We use superlatives, tallest, smallest. We use that not as a scientific, academic evaluation of Pastor Ryan's height, but we use it to make a point. I read an article some, well, I guess it's been about six or seven months ago, and it said just about everyone on Oahu shot fireworks for the New Year's. Now, it certainly seems that way, doesn't it? But I would imagine that probably not even the majority of people on Oahu shot fireworks. Most of us just watch the idiots who did it, right? We just watch. But it seems like that, and that's how you make the point. You know, this is even in the Bible. When you look earlier in the book of Matthew, uh, uh, Matthew says, All of Jerusalem and Judea came out to see John the Baptist by the Jordan. Now, I don't think he means each and every last, probably two or three million people just fled all their little villages in all of Judea, including the capital city of Jerusalem, and they all went out, all several million went out and crowded around John the Baptist. So I don't think all means all there. I think means many, many, many. Maybe not even majority, but many people went out to see John the Baptist. We understand the concept of hyperbole. And this is how Jesus is using this. Even in the ESV, you can see that this is, this is kind of how he's, how he's saying it, right? 
Verse 32, it's the smallest of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree. I mean, he even used it when he talks about all the garden plants, all the trees. So we can understand hyperbole. So I think this is one answer. Now, the reason I give you this is because I don't want you to think and be intimidated by some of these accusations that sort of at first sound like a pretty credible accusation. Just put on your thinking cap, read a good commentary, have a good study Bible, and you'll find out that there's been some great answers uh, to those kind of criticism. Another answer, another response to this accusation is that it was indeed most likely the smallest of all farming seeds. Uh, they didn't farm flowers back then. Flowers no, uh, notably have small seeds like orchids and very small seeds, uh, but they didn't have 1-800-Flowers and companies that harvested flowers and stuff. They just they, they tried to survive, so they either planted food or things that would spice food like mustard. And so of all the things that you would plant... Mustard seed most likely was indeed the smallest seed that you would actually farm. And so Jesus may not have even been speaking hyperbolically there. He may have been speaking in terms of agriculture. Well, again, I just wanted to point this out to you so that you're not intimidated by some of these accusations. This is one of those parables that, I mean, it's, it's almost every three or four years you have some genius Ph.D. student who just is certain that we all just need to tear up our Bibles and throw them in the rubbish bin because Jesus made a mistake about seed size. But this is ridiculous. There's good answers for all of these things. Well, what's Jesus' point here? It's already been established that the people on the outside, the, the rejectors, the, the, particularly the Jewish rejectors, those people who had the Old Testament, they rejected Christ in spite of what they'd, they'd heard, in spite of what had happened. And these 12 may have been a little bit depressed. Maybe they've wondered if it's going to get any bigger than this, and Jesus' point is saying, hey, this thing is going to start small. You 12 are small, and really 11. This is small, this is sparse, this is tiny, this is nothing. But the story of the mustard seed is to tell you that this thing is going to grow and grow and grow. Starting with the smallest of seeds, it'll grow into a massive tree. And that's, that's really part of the, the twist, the surprising twist, because the mustard trees usually don't grow very big. Usually they're pretty small bushes. But this tree is depicted as, as large, as huge, so big that, that many birds can come and make nests in it. This is an allusion to Daniel chapter 4. Daniel looks forward and sees in the future the day of Christ's kingdom, that it is a giant tree that all the birds come and make their nests in it. But it must start small, not full of impurity, not full of false growth and fake believers. It has to be a purified church. It has to start small, and then it will grow and grow and grow into this massive tree. And in this tree, many people will find their home. Well, this is true of Christianity, isn't it? Though much of what is Christianity now is weak or false, there can be no denying that Christianity has shaped the world. It is a worldwide, massive kingdom. Certainly, if you look at the Western countries, Europe and America, you think back to the Middle Ages, the Reformation, almost everything revolved around Christ, revolved around the church, revolved around the kingdom. Without, the, without Christianity, there would be no arts of that era, no Bach, no Handel, no Mozart, most paintings, most architecture. You look at Asia, the East, even closed countries like China, and there are millions and millions of people who profess Christ. Both Korea and the Philippines are, are dominated by Christianity. 
Other countries not far behind. In the South Pacific, just about every South Pacific island has been reached. All of them evangelized, all of them set up as a nation built around Christian principles. If you look to Africa, massive swaths of Christianity growing and expanding. You know, it's, it's interesting. If you look at a couple of denominations in America that are, that are dying, that are really notoriously dying because they're embracing liberalism, the, the United Methodist Church and the Anglican Church, those, both those denominations are dying because, by and large, not all of them, I, I will say there's plenty of exceptions, but uh, not all of them have they've embraced uh, theological liberalism, rejecting the resurrection, rejecting uh, Christ as God, the, the deity of Christ, rejecting the virgin birth, those kind of things. And when you reject that, you're rejecting the gospel. And the, 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 the Methodist churches, the UMC and the, and, uh, the uh, Anglican church as well, are, are pretty much dead in America or dying. They're on their way out. But if you look to Africa... This is the, these are the most growing places. In fact, it's gotten so bad that the, a lot of the folks in Africa have separated themselves with the non-Bible-believing American uh, denominations. They want, to, they want to believe the Bible. They believe what's true. And it's growing, and it's expanding, and it's exploding. I mean, when I was a little boy in Zimbabwe, we went to school every morning. Some of you remember this from some months ago as we studied uh, Matthew chapter 6. We went to school, and this is not a Christian school, but we all got together. The whole school assembled in the gymnasium at the beginning. The teachers, the, the, the principals, we all got in the school. And you know what we did? The first thing we did every morning? Recite the Lord's Prayer in the middle of Africa. The, the kingdom has grown. The kingdom has exploded. And even though we live in a day, especially in America, where Christianity has gotten richer and richer and fatter and fatter and, and more and more lukewarm because of it, and just like it happened in Europe five, six hundred years ago, we are seeing an explosion of evangelism and growth. The kingdom is growing all over other parts of our world. What Jesus is saying his disciples and what he's saying to us, you don't worry about the growth and the size of the kingdom. I will build my church. You don't have to worry about the size of the kingdom. It will march forward. Now remember... It seems like in every new presidency, when I talk to missionaries or mission organization heads, they get, they get really worried about the president and what the president's going to do and what the president's going to say and if he's going to restrict this or say things or get into a war or, or whatever. And they, they seem to be worried that maybe somehow this will impact the kingdom. And I just remind them, they can't stop the kingdom from growing. And Jesus illustrates this in the very, this very parable. This kingdom will grow. It will expand, and there's nothing that can stop it. Even the gates of hell cannot stop the growth of the kingdom. There are places that we've not even heard of. The gospel is exploding. It's growing. Jesus says, there's places you, you gentlemen don't even know about. You don't even know this earth. You don't know this planet, and I will grow to all corner, corners. I will build my kingdom to this massive, unstoppable force. Now, that's truth number one. It's small, particularly when Jesus was saying this to his men. It's small, but it's growing. Number two, the kingdom is unseen, but working. Verse 33, he told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like, a le- like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till all of it was leavened. 
In spite of the fact that I accidentally made some decent ribs the other day, I, almost, I know almost nothing about cooking, particularly baking. Every time I've baked, I've just made a huge disaster of it, and they pretty much banned me from the kitchen, especially Thanksgiving. I'm not even allowed to cross the threshold into the kitchen. So I had to figure out what exactly leaven and yeast, what, what is all this? Well, I looked this up. Leaven or leavening agents, that's sort of a, a broad group of things, broad, broad group of agents that introduce air, or technically gas, CO2, into bread, into bread making. So you can have biological leavening agents like yeast, which is technically a fungus. I don't know if you knew that or not, but technically it's a fungus. And it, when it, as it expands, as it grows, it introduces these air pockets all in your bread. Because that's what you want for bread, right? If you don't have all those air pockets, it's just a rock, which is how I make bread. It just becomes a little stone. But whether it's a cookie or whether it's nice soft bread, a sandwich bread, it's going to have all those little microscopic holes in it, and that's what, that's what leaven does or yeast does. Uh, a chemical uh, leavening agent would be something like baking soda or baking powder. They have other, there's actually mechanical ways that they introduce air into, into the bread. Even, even like mixing it up a whole bunch, you can introduce air to the bread. But, but uh, uh, leaven is any of these things, is any of these things that introduce this air. And you know how it goes. I've watched my wife. She makes these, these homemade rolls, and she comes home with that little yeast packet, and she's got her dough there, and she puts that yeast in there, and then she just starts working it and working it and working it. And then she puts this little dough in a bowl and puts something over it and puts it in the fridge. And a couple hours later, it's grown twice the size. Well, this picture, this picture of, of leavening or putting yeast into bread, this is a picture that every person in Israel would have been familiar with. They saw their mother do it. They grew up watching this. They knew exactly what Jesus was talking about. Everyone understood leaven and how this worked. And the, 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 whoever was making bread, most likely the mother making bread, she would, she would make this bread. She would put this. This thing would rise. She would take a chunk of it and set it to the side, this Bread with leaven or yeast, this agent in it, he would, she would set a little tiny part of it to the side. Then she would cook this bread, and the next day she would take the leftover little chunk of leavened bread and put it back in, and she would bury it. She would hide it. She would punch it down deep, and then she would start to work it. And then she would allow it to rise and do the same thing over and over again. It had been done for many, many, many years. I uh, have never had the privilege of being in San Francisco. I was talking to Karen the other day, and she said, and Karen lived in San Francisco for a little while. And she said, uh, uh, when she was there, you know, they make a big deal about sourdough. And if you look up some of the sourdough, the leaven from it is 100, 200 years old. They've carried it from thing to thing to thing. They've always kept out a little bit. So everyone in Israel would have understood exactly this, this picture here. And the picture is, is perfect for us understanding the kingdom of Christ. It's, it's virtually invisible. Like little pellets of yeast. It's almost nothing. You can't see it. It gets buried inside the dough. It disappears. You don't even know if it's there or not. But after a while, it grows and grows and grows and grows, and that whole lump of dough becomes enormous. Well, the kingdom of Christ started out almost invisible. I think of the Roman historian Tacitus, who lived a little bit after Jesus, he's one of the only Roman historians 
uh, aside from uh, Josephus, who wasn't necessarily uh, officially Roman, but Josephus was there in Israel and observed all this stuff and wrote a history. But Tacitus was, was in Rome and wrote a history. He was one of the only Roman historians who mentioned Jesus Christ. And to him, the way he talked about Jesus, Jesus was, was no impact. He was just some sort of sectarian Jew who had a group of followers, and that's it. He didn't know much about him. He talks about Christus, which, of course, would be the, the Latinization of the word Christ. Nothing more than that. In fact, he, he used Jesus as an example of, of one of the many little groups that they had to snuff out and do a couple executions. And this Jesus was one of the very many people that they had to do. I mean, just, just an example, just a passing uh, illustration of another thing that they snuffed out and it came to be nothing. No. Well, in that day or actually a few years after that, a few years after Tacitus, the Roman Empire would grow to an astonishing, for that day, 70 million people. And the Roman Empire was spread out across Europe and the Middle East and north part of Africa. These 70 million, this was the, the largest, and it was one of, it is still one of the longest-lasting empires ever on earth. But did you know how many people today claim to be Christians? 2.4 billion with a B. The kingdom of Christ was just a, a tiny, hidden, unnoticeable speck of dust in Israel. When Jesus spoke these words, that's all it was. Twelve guys out of 70 million. Now it's more than 34 times bigger than the whole Roman Empire ever was, and it continues to grow. The Roman Empire doesn't even exist anymore. What empire, what kingdom has ever even come close to Jesus' kingdom? None. I found one kingdom. You've never heard of it. It's called the Pandian Empire. I will give you anybody $5 if they've ever heard of the Pandian Empire. The Pandian Empire, it's from India. It evolved and changed, and they'd had different kings and empires, and so it's hard to really say that that actual empire lasted as long as it did. But it did change in one form or another over about 18, 17, 1800 years. But it was limited to a tiny corner of India, and it died 600 years ago. And that's what they say is the longest ever kingdom of this earth to last, 17, 1800 years. Well, here we are at year 2000, and it's the biggest it's ever been, the kingdom of Christ, and it continues to grow and spread all over the world. That can't even compare, the Pandian Empire can't even compare to the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of heaven. Billions of people altogether, past and present, all over the world, all different nationalities. So Jesus says with these two parables, it was, it's small, but it's growing, it's unseen, it's almost unnoticeable, it's a speck of dust, but it's being kneaded into the fabric of humanity, and it's maturing and growing and expanding to become the biggest kingdom ever. All right, one more truth, positive truth about the kingdom of Jesus that he was inaugurating at that time. It is this, number three, hidden but proclaimed. Hidden but proclaimed. You could say Jesus told them that until now there's this, been this secret. It's been hidden. But I am now unveiling these truths for you. Verse 34. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. 
I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Now, we learned this early in our study. And one of the reasons he spoke to the Jews in parables or the mainly Jewish audience in parables was to veil the truth, but it was also to unveil the truth. And that's what he's focusing on. The veiled side of it is sort of the negative side, the rejection, the, the people who resisted and rejected, rejected and would be the weeds that are all around. This is the people to whom he's unveiling. He is giving them the secrets of the kingdom, you could say. He's unveiling the truths of the kingdom. What has been hidden will be uttered by the Messiah. The secrets of the kingdom are now proclaimed. Now, what secrets that were once hidden are being revealed? What is what's being proclaimed? Well, for one thing, we've mentioned this several times before already, but one thing, the Messiah would come on a mercy mission first as a lamb to be slaughtered, not as a conquering king. That was one thing that was a little bit hidden. It's in the Old Testament. I mean, if you read it very carefully, particularly in the, uh, the latter prophets, particularly in Isaiah, it's there. You can see a slaughtered lamb, but it's not as blatant and obvious, and so the people of Israel just kind of ignored it. They just forgot it, and they set it to the side. They focused on the stuff they wanted to focus on, parts of the Bible that were appealing to them. And so by the time Christ came, it was, it was essentially a mystery to them that the Messiah would come as a lamb to be slaughtered. This was a mystery. This was hidden. This was a secret that they could not even fathom. Now, Jesus is revealing this to him. He's proclaiming it to them. So that's one former secret that's being proclaimed. Another secret is that the Jews would, by and large, reject their Messiah. And so the kingdom would then graft in many, many Gentiles. This would essentially become a Gentile religion made up of, yes, Jews, but mostly Gentiles. Only toward the end of the world will many Jews return. The Apostle Paul said in Ephesians chapter 3 that the secret, the mystery, is now revealed. What secret? What mystery? The mystery of Christ, he says, Ephesians 3 verse 4, which, has, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations. So it's been hidden before. It's not been made known before but has now been revealed to His holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So the, so the secret is that in the Old Testament, in order to be a Yahweh follower, you had to become a Jew. You had to follow this process, worship as they did. And hidden in that was this idea that one day... The gospel will be worldwide. You don't have to become a Jew. You don't have to travel to Israel. You don't have to come into that theocratic nation. Through the gospel, you just believe the gospel and you become part of the kingdom. What's well, another thing hidden that Jesus is revealing? That later, not then, but later, he would return as judge. Again, we talked about this a little bit last time that at his second advent, Jesus would turn, return with reapers, angels, who will with him separate the weeds and the wheat, the sheep and the goats, and he would judge all those who were his enemy. That could happen at any moment, but until, this, until then, we live in this age of mercy. This is, again, one of the secrets. So these secrets 
and there are more, about the nature of the kingdom are being revealed. This is what Jesus is saying. The nature of the kingdom, the truth of the kingdom, is being more and more revealed and proclaimed. Back then, it was a time when you wouldn't, it was foggy. You wouldn't really see what this was going to look like. Now it's being revealed. Now I'm explaining it to you. This is what's happening. We can understand the kingdom now. The Bible says that the folks in the Old Testament longed to see the day of Christ. It was foggy for them. It was secret to them. It was a mystery to them how the Messiah would come and be, what, how he would provide salvation. It was, a, it was a confusing secret to them. They didn't understand how. They believed, the faithful ones believed, they trusted, they looked forward, even as far back as Adam and Eve. They anticipated the Messiah. They looked all the way forward, but they had no clue what it would be like. Now it's all being revealed. It's been hidden, but now it's being proclaimed. Well, exciting days for the disciples of Jesus, and exciting days for us to know what's happening, to, to listen to Jesus' word, to be encouraged. And I think especially in a day like today with all the disease and confusing things. I mean, I don't know about you, but I, I have read so many conflicting reports about the rate of sickness and what is right and wrong. I mean, it is just befuddling. And then just the political fight that's going on. You'd think that this crazy country could get itself together and be unified, but no. We all busted up and hating one another, right? And sometimes we can look at all this and just be a little bit depressed. But there's one place we can look, and that is to the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of Christ, and be encouraged. It marches on. Jesus will be proclaimed. Jesus will be announced. The elders and I talked this week about what would we do, because, of course, you know, there was a threat early on this week when Caldwell came out and hinted around that he's not going to let anybody get together if it's more than 10 people and try to walk back all the restrictions that we had some months ago. And the elders and I said, you know what, we're providing online services, we're providing Kapuna services, we're providing all these breakout rooms and areas where people can socially distance, we're providing hand sanitizers and face guards, and we're doing everything we can. We just don't think we can walk this back ourselves. And thankfully, uh, the Baptist Convention actually talked to the mayor's office and said, no, the churches do not have to walk back the restrictions. So we're, you're not going to get arrested when you walk out here. But we just thought to ourselves, you know what? I, the kingdom of God marches on. It's hard to stop people who are part of the kingdom of Christ to be excited and loving and want to be and hear the word and sing the word and have fellowship. It's, it's hard to just stop this force. We, we can't stop it eventually. We can't stop you because you're part of the kingdom. We can't stop the growth of God's kingdom. And so it's an exciting day for us in spite of the fact that all these difficult things are happening. It's exciting for us. I, I think we had, um, I'm not sure, I'm not good at counting how many people do this and that, but I think we had like 19 adults and 10 children become a part of our church last week. I mean, that's amazing. In the middle of all this, we were concerned that anybody would ever join our church or ever even visit our church anymore because of this stuff. And yet we have all these folks coming and being a part. And why? Because this is not just some sort of organization. This is part of the kingdom of Christ that's marching forward. Encouraging days. And even in a difficulty, even as the, the world winds down, even in spite of all of that, encouraging days ahead. Well, let's thank God for the privilege to be a part of his kingdom Right now, Father, we thank you so much for these truths. We thank you for all that you've given us. We thank you for your son crucified, whom we're going to celebrate here in a moment in the Lord's table. 
We thank you that the inauguration of his kingdom there with the disciples as it was small and confusing and unclear as it became more and more clear and as you then uh, had your son lay down his life and then you raised him up, Lord, watching all this happen through history is just shocking and it's astonishing of how you establish your church and how you continue to grow it. And so, Lord, we, we bless you for this. We honor you for this. Thank you for the, all, all that you've given us. We do pray, Lord, that we would be faithful members of your kingdom. Lord, we want to honor you as, as uh, saints in your kingdom, as, as people in your kingdom. We want to represent that fact that we are citizens of your kingdom uh, more than we are citizens of anything else or anywhere else. Help us love you in that way. And Lord, I pray if there's anyone here who has not repented and by faith trusted in Christ, Lord, again, make them desperate so that they would cry out in repentance and faith. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.